today for the first time, and uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And I give you Fran from Hermosa, California. All right, I'm Fran. I'm an alcoholic. And um, is there anybody else here who's the kind of drunk that I am that every now and then somebody walks up and says to them, you're all alone, you know. And I was just looking up here. I was, I said, that's right. Not only that, but I thought I was going to have to carry my chair off the thing, too. I was getting a little worried about that. But anyway, somehow, you know, as crazy as these things are, as mixed up, as confused as they are, as, you know, as whatever they are, they always wind up being just absolutely marvelous, don't they? And I don't, I, I, yeah, come on, let's give them a hand. I think they're going to go to them. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because I went and had dinner with a lot of the committee people and they bought my dinner so I figure I have to be nice to them, you know, so. Anyway, you know what they do is they say, okay, what you do is you tell your story, you share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now. Okay, I'm willing to do that. And then they say, um, and don't get too specific. Um, okay, um, I only use four-lettered words when I'm talking down there. Uh, uh, although sometimes they're appropriate. And, uh, but the thing, I, we were talking at the, at the, at the table, and uh, some of the people were telling me some of the stories that they wanted me to tell, so I'm going to try. But the first comment I want to make is, has anybody here ever noticed that um, guys play Can You Top This in AA? Well, they play it all over the place, but they... <laughs> They really play it in AA. One guy gets up, he's been to three hospitals. The next guy that gets up to the podium, you know he's going to say he's been to five. So what happens is that the more a man tells his story, the more interesting it gets. By the same token, I also noticed that uh, the more women tell their stories, the more boring they get. And, um, and I, I think I figured it out. And it's because when the guys come in here, they have sobriety. And what happens with the women... Unfortunately, is that when the women come in here, they get respectability. And all of a sudden, they stop talking about, about what made them drag their greasy asses in here in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm not going to play the guy game. And, um, I have never been too carefully seeking of respectability. Uh, and, and, and that will come out in my story. Uh, you know, I drank four times before I was 21. Four times. Four times I drank. Four times I got drunk. Four times I got in trouble. First time I drank, I was only a little kid. I was like six years old or so, and my sister and I were cute. So we were serving drinks at one of Daddy's fabulous parties, and my father was a gangster in New York. And, and uh, he had all his friends there that night, and they were having a wonderful time, and Annie and I were carrying trays into the living room with these wonderful drinks on them, and I tasted mine, and I said to her, taste that. And she tasted it. I said, it's good. She said, it's good. So the two of us served the drinks from the trays and went back to Daddy and said, we can carry more. <laughs> and he gave us everything we could carry, and instead of making a right turn into the living room, we walked straight into the closet, and both of us drank everything on our trays. I remember waking up the next morning, sick, sober, and sorry. And, you know, you got this midget standing there, bleeding from the eyeballs. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell me? You know, plenty. What's plenty? So what, what, my, what my family did was they made a funny story out of it. And it's like you pick her up, you put her little butt right here, you look her right in her beady brown eyes, say, Franny, you got to cool it. You drink too much, you know. And is there anybody else here that comes from an alcoholic family? If you had one alcoholic parent, raise one arm. If you had two alcoholic parents, raise two. I had alcoholic grandparents, too, so, you know, I can I keep on going. I also have alcoholic kids. And uh, I, the tradition in our family was we learned to talk with our eyebrows. We learned to look at each other. And is, did Daddy call yet? No, no, he hasn't called. So if you ever taped it, it sounded like a normal conversation, but we're looking at each other. And, and what we're doing is we're telling each other, listen, this is the third time he's called. It's been a half an hour since the last time he called. He's obviously up at the stag's head getting drunk. 
And then, and then one or the other of us would say, um, well, um, you have more homework to do? Yeah. Uh, why don't we go do our homework at the library? Hey, that's a good idea. And so what we've done is we've communicated. It sounds like we're just kids talking about daddy and then let's go do our homework at the library. But actually what we were saying was, is daddy drunk tonight? Yeah, he sounds like he's going to come home totally polaxed. Okay, well, let's get out of here before he comes home and beats us up again. Okay, where are we going to go hide? Library's a good place. It's open till 10 o'clock. Let's go. See, that was the real conversation. Um, that's the way my sisters and I learned to talk to each other. Um, we learned, we, we came, we were so dysfunctional. I didn't know what alcoholic meant. I had an alcoholic father and an alcoholic mother. My grandparents were alcoholic. My grandmother was the kind of alcoholic. She would, uh, she would get drunk and one time she rolled into the Christmas tree. And I don't know how it happened. Don't ask me to explain something like that. But what did happen was, she is firmly planted behind the Christmas tree, and she was five foot two tall and five foot two wide, and we couldn't get her out. And the reason we couldn't get her out was because my father was drunk that day too, and he was working one of those, you know those puzzles they give you before Christmas that you're supposed to unscrew in three different directions, plant the tree in it, and then tighten it up again. Well, Daddy, being the classic drunk that he was, fortified himself for this ordeal with the booze. My mother, being, of course, not at all hostile, uh, was standing across the room, and she kept telling him the tree was crooked because she was mad at him because he was drunk, and the reason she was really mad was because she was drunk. And so what happened was he finally got disgusted, and he pulled this contraption off the bottom of the tree and threw it out the window and nailed the tree to the floor. <laughs> now, you have to understand something. We were not living in a single-family residence at the time. We were living on the second story of a brownstone in New York. And um, naturally, when we tried to pull Nana out from behind the tree, the tree wasn't going to move, and she was too drunk to move. And um, I kept suggesting leave her there. You know, that seemed like an absolutely perfect solution to me, but nobody was listening to me. Anyway, I guess I guess you got out of it. I don't know how. Okay, that's the first the, the first time I, dr I drank was at one of Daddy's parties. That's my kind of kind of background. If I told you that story and you build everything else around it, you're probably right. Second time I drank, I was 14 years old and I got drunk. It was the first time I drank in a bar, and uh, the bartender served me. And I came home, and I walked into my bedroom, and I made the mistake of closing the door and then looking for the light switch, and I got lost in my own bedroom. It was dark, and I wasn't feeling too good. And I had to go to the bathroom, and I started feeling like I had to throw up. So it was getting pretty desperate. I won't go into the details, but I will tell you this. I never got out of the bedroom that night. And I tried to clean it up as best I could, and I remember my mother standing in the door of the bedroom the next morning, looking at me. And I'm sitting there looking at her. And that's the first time I ever saw the Al-Anon face. You know that look? They just look at you. And you're supposed to know what they want. I never had a clue. Never. The only thing I knew was that if I groveled and apologized, I would wind up getting slapped up against the wall and hear two and a half hours of everything I ever did wrong in my life. I also knew that if I got hostile defensively, that I would probably get a beating. But what I did learn that day was that if I just sat there and looked at you, you would eventually break down in tears, throw your hands up in the air, and walk away. Uh, if you're planning on drinking again, pay attention. I will pass some information on to you. Um, the next time I drank, I got drunk and I got pregnant. And the, and the next time I drank, I got drunk and I got married. So, you know, if somebody asked me, you know, Fanny, why do you drink the way you do? You get so weird. I would have carefully explained to you that I was only trying to learn to drink like other people drink. That everybody around me drank that way. They seemed to do it successfully. And obviously, I was just a slow learner, but I was going to get it. Four times drinking, four times drunk, four times in trouble. And all I attributed to was, well, you know, I just got to work harder at doing this right. For the people that have alcoholic parents, the one thing that I've noticed in AA is that we spend a lot of time trying to do what our parents did 
and not have the results that they did. I spent, I nearly destroyed my life trying to prove that I was not like my father. And the absolutely perfect way that I could do that was to drink the way he drank and not wind up being the kind of animal that he was. And the truth of the matter was, I failed. I failed. I, I was going to go to my grave one time successfully drinking. And that was my intention. And I never achieved it. And I nearly died in the attempt. Uh, the guy that got me pregnant was a neat guy, and um, he just wanted to get married and be an L.A. fireman. Um, we were New York kids, but we left New York because I was pregnant, and we didn't want to upset the family. So we went to California, and, um, and he decided he wanted to be an L.A. fireman. And, you know, the, his only problem was that he was normal. That was his only problem. He bored me. You can beat me. You can cheat me. You can abuse me. Okay, you can steal from me, but don't you dare bore me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was so square, he was a cube, you know, and God, you know, all he wanted to do was have a normal family with a white picket fence, a dog, a cat, four kids in four years, he was Catholic, and, you know, just have a wife he could bring his money home to and she'd take care of the bills, and see, that's where his program fell apart, because that wasn't my intention. I do not remember ever planning on hurting somebody. But what I do remember is the day that I was 21 years old, I called up my girlfriend. I said, let's get dressed up and let's go out because now I can drink the way I want. That's all I really remember about drinking in that period of time. But somehow or other, my drinking just, it got, there was never enough. You know, that one about one drink is too many and a thousand's not enough. That was the way I drank. When it wasn't there, it was no problem. But the minute it was there, there was no way I could stop until I consumed everything in sight. And uh, one of the other things is that when I was 14 years old, I went to my mother and I said, Mama, there's something very unfair here. My sister Ann, who was 13 at the time, the boys were walking right past me to get to Annie. And I said to my mother, I have seniority here. What's going on? And she said, well, I don't... So, so I, she said, let's go down to see Dr. Finn. So we went down to Dr. Finn. Because I was still flat-chested. And I didn't have a figure. And Annie was turning into an orchid. It's the only way to describe her. And Dr. Finn said, Franny, don't worry about it. You're going to be very tall. You're not finished with your growth yet. But I understand how you feel. So here, I'm going to give you an open prescription for Benzedrine, and you take as many as you need, and you'll lose a little weight. And he did this the, uh, the year I was 14. And I came into AA when I was 33. And I was, I always used speed simply because I felt like I could cope. You know, when you read the women's magazines and you see all these perfect houses and these perfect rooms with these perfect husbands. I mean, I never knew how those women got up and had their makeup perfect. But I do remember reading in a women's magazine one time that they said there was nothing wrong with getting up earlier than your husband and applying whatever you needed so you could look fresh over coffee. And uh, if that's not going to teach you to be a liar, cheat and a thief, I don't know what is. But I'm part of that generation, you know. And Anyway, I remember going into orbit one time at my sponsor's house because one of the new girls walked in and she was carrying one of these magazines in tears. And I started screaming and I started calling them liars, cheats and thieves and everything else and one of the guys in the group knew that I was going ballistic, and I didn't have much control even after two years of sobriety. So he said to me, Franny, Franny, it's okay. I know why that's going on. And I said, finally an answer. What is it? He says, those rooms are all designed by gay guys that hate women. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and, you know, that made sense to me. And, and later on I said to him, how did you know that? And he said, well, I didn't. I just made it up. And... It seemed to work, <laughs> but that's the way they tried to keep me calm anyway when I was newly sober, which is way ahead of the story. Um, what happened was my husband was starting to get real dissatisfied with my behavior, and um, we bought a house down at the beach, and one day I walked down on the beach, and I'm, I'm looking around, and I'm saying, what's going on with my life? What, what is, am I, I had a baby, I had another baby, I bought a car, I had another baby, I bought a house. I'm standing there, six years married, four kids, a car and a house. And I'm saying to my girlfriend, is this all there is? 
And she's saying, yeah, what else do you want? And I'm thinking, there's got to be something wrong. So I went up to the Catholic Church, and I asked the priest, I said, what, you know, what's the deal here? Not that I was hostile, but I said to him, Father, if the only thing you want us to do is breed lots and lots of little Catholics for you, why do you bother educating girls? And he looked at me like it was so self-evident, and he said, well, so you won't raise ignorant boys. And I, I thanked him for his input. And I walked away from him, and I walked away from the Catholic Church. And the thing is, is that religion is a tremendous support. Religion is part of the glue of our society. Religion is the usual place for spiritual comfort, strength, and solace for most people. Right? It's absolutely appropriate. So when I walked away from the church, what I did was I walked away from a huge part of my support system. And what I did was, by doing things like that, I found myself further and further out on the edge and more and more alone. And and I kept wondering why I was feeling lonely, even when I was at a party with my husband, or or why I felt such sadness when I looked at my kids. And, and I couldn't understand. I, I, I used to think of myself as an alien. And I, I want to look for some identification here. How many people here remember the day before they were born? <laughs> I'm going to remind you. The day before I was born, I was sitting in a room very much like this, waiting for my assignment. And so was everybody else that was in there with me. And I had to go to the bathroom. So I got up, and I, I went out, and I found it. And while I was out of the room... Some funny-looking guy with this white thing on him and these big white things sticking out of his back, you know, came walking in carrying a big box. And he started going around from table to table to table to table, and he started giving these little books out. Everybody at every table got a book, and he covered the entire room, and there was one book left in the box. And he said, well, maybe supply made a mistake. So he and the box and the book left. After he left, I came walking back in, and the first thing I notice is, everybody's got this book. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, I missed out. I was just trying to take care of myself, and I was wrong again. But of course, because I'm coming from total terror, I'm, and because I am so hip slick and cool, you understand. I'm not going to tell anybody that I didn't get my issue. So I sit down, and i real cool, you know, and I look over to see what it is my sponsor has in her lap. I mean, my, uh, my neighbor has in her lap. And it's this little book, and it says, The Owner's Guide to Being a Human Being. And what happened was I got born without my book. And when I was a little kid, I realized real early that everybody around me knew exactly what to do. And not only did they know what to do, they knew how to do it. And somehow or other, I was always totally inappropriate. I was always either stepping on my tail or stepping on my tongue. I was always in trouble. I never intended to be in trouble. I wanted to be a good kid. I wanted to be a good adult. I wanted to be a good mother. I wanted to be a good wife. And I never succeeded at any of it because I couldn't stand reality. I could... It's not that I hated you. I just couldn't tolerate you. Okay? And when I changed me chemically, you became okay. And I noticed that when I drank, the party got to be more fun. I noticed when I drank, I did things better, including sex. At least I thought so. So what happened was I found out from that experience with that doctor when I was 13 that if I took speed and drank behind it, the party lasted longer, the drinking lasted longer, the lights were brighter, the music was better, the dancing was hotter, everybody was having more fun, and it was just fabulous. I, I used the speed primarily to keep drinking, because that was the only time in my life when I felt okay. I went down on the beach after we moved down there, and there was this bunch of people down there, 
And the, the guys have hair as long as the girls. They have these headbands on. They're wearing vests with no shirts. They've got, and the girls look like Russian peasants of some sort, Ukrainian anyway. And everybody's running around saying, peace, brother. This was in, uh, 64. And I'm thinking to myself, my God. And you know what was really interesting about this group of people? They were smiling even when nobody was looking. I liked it. I liked it. They got my attention. They had a program of attraction. And I went over and I hooked into them. And I started hanging out with them. And within a week, I went home and I threw away my gloves, my hats, my stockings, my high heel shoes, my purses, those stupid little neck veils, and everything. And in three weeks, I'm down there hairy, happy, and hippie too. And I am, I am in my element. And, and we're drinking red wine out of gallon jugs. And, and my job, I felt like I finally found what I could do. My job was to find the exactly perfect place in the sand where we used to bury the big jug of wine in the brown paper bag so that it, w it was cool enough without getting wet enough to sog off the paper, you know? I, I, is, has anybody else here ever noticed that drunks treat the police like they're really stupid? As a matter of fact, I believe it's reciprocal, but have you noticed that somehow or other we believe that if we take a gallon jug of a characteristic shape, wrap it in a brown paper grocery bag, because nothing is big enough to fit it except that, start drinking it by slinging it over our shoulder, and we expect the police to think it's Coke. You know? I, I don't know, but, you know, they never hassled us as long as we kept it covered, so I guess it was okay. My husband came to me and he said, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm getting sick and tired of it. I know for a fact that you're screwing around with those guys. I know for a fact that you're neglecting the kids. I know for a fact that you're drunk most of the day. I, you know, I don't know who you are anymore. I want you to get out of my life and send my wife back to me. He says, you are not the lady I married. You are not the woman that I intended for the mother of my children. You are not the friend I want to go into my old age with. So you, whoever you are, split and send my wife back. But what had happened to me was, from hanging around with my cool friends, I had developed a little vocabulary too. So where I used to be, have to deal with all of this with just, like I said, outweighing them, I finally knew how to do it. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, Hey, don't get heavy on me. <laughs> I, he had... He didn't know what to do. You know, he just he just didn't know. So anyway, he left me alone, and he's over there in his corner mumbling and grumbling, and he's just getting madder and madder. My kids are getting tireder and tireder of what's going on, and I'm getting more and more desperate because nothing seems to be working. I, You know, I'm, I'm into constantly drunk all day, every day now, and it still doesn't seem to do any good. And what happened was when my son was eight years old, my oldest son, the day he was eight years old, we were supposed to have a birthday party for him. I got drunk instead. I brought the kids some ice cream on the pier, told them, come on home, the party will be ready. I mean, I was drunk out of my mind. My husband poured me into the car and took me home. He was disappointed. The kids were disappointed. There was no birthday party. And my daughter's on the phone, and she's saying, when we got to the house, she's saying, Mommy, come back down here quick. I don't know what happened. But Buddy was sitting on the railing at the pier, and he finished his ice cream, and I guess his hands were slippery, or one of the kids pushed him. But he went over backwards into the water, and we can't find him. And I know what it's like to be just shocked into absolute cold, functional sober. I put that man in the car, I drove us back down the pier, and I started running down the beach. Because my kid's out there in that water, and nobody knows where he is. And this big fat Samoan friend of mine pushed me down in the sand and said, Franny, God, don't you find him. And he held me there watching the water until one of my friends came walking out carrying the body of my birthday kid. And i got to tell you something about that. The first thing is, don't ever make any pronouncements to me about whether you're an atheist or not. Because you don't even know if you are. And you don't know whether you're an atheist or not until you're in a situation like that. Because that's when you pray. 
And the thing I know from my experience is there are no atheists. Most of the people that say they are, what we're talking about is some scared kids. But anyway, here's what you do. First thing, you pray and you bargain. And you say, God, please don't punish that baby because I'm an incompetent human being. Don't take his life away because I'm a rotten mother. I mean, if there's any equity in this world at all, you know, my husband hates me. My kids don't need me. Take me. I, so I, I, I got in here without my book. I've never been able to do a decent job of it. Take me and get, get me off this thing and let that baby live because he loves life and everybody loves him. And the second thing that you do is you go into that private place that every one of us has and you find the one thing that you can use that you can bargain your biggest, heaviest bargaining chip, and you get out there and you say, God, please let him live, and I will even quit drinking. And the thing I want to pass on to you tonight is if you've ever been in a situation, real or imaginary, where you have said, God, please, whatever it is, and I will even quit drinking, I want to tell you something. You just showed us what your biggest bargaining chip is. And if it's a bottle of booze, baby, don't ever worry about whether you're an alcoholic or not. You know? So anyway, um, my husband did the thing normal people do. He grieved. He fell apart. He did that. Um, I went home and cooked dinner because the kind of world that I created for myself and the kind of people that I was finally running with, my my people... You couldn't admit you were, you, were, you were hurt. You couldn't say, please, ever. You, you couldn't talk about any kind of pain. You couldn't ask for any kind of help. Because the kind of people that I ran with, if they knew you were vulnerable, would have cut your throat and taken your money. See, so I never let on. And all I know is, is that what I did was I started drinking more. And the interesting thing about that is that friends said to me, well, why wouldn't you drink more? I mean, you've got a tragedy. And the truth is... It doesn't take a tragedy for an alcoholic to drink like that. The tragedy is only a perfect excuse. Nobody had the nerve to say to me, Franny, you're drinking too much. I milked that situation for everything I could get out of it. Alcoholics do not drink because of a situation. Alcoholics drink because the booze is there. It's all we need. So what happened was two months later, my husband came to me and he said, I want to tell you something. I talked to the psychiatrist, I talked to the psychologist that we've been going to for counseling, I talked to the doctors that you've been going to, I talked to the teachers, the priests, and everybody else who knows you, and the psychiatrist opened the records, and you are a psychopathic deviant, and the advice that I have from everybody is to divorce you and take the kids away from you before you murder another one of my children. So this is the last you're going to see of me, and he walked out. And the only thought that I had at that moment was, good, he's gone, now I can drink the way I want. And I did. But the other thing that I realized was I really wanted to hang on to my kids. Because as incompetent and as bad a human being as I was, and as rotten a mother as I was, I did love those kids. They were the only real thing in my universe. You know, and it was not to their advantage that for, for them to have me as a parent. But they were my reality. So I went out and I found a lawyer and I seduced him and I blackmailed him and I caused him to provide false witnesses and I wound up getting the kids. Hey, we're overachievers, right? You know, if you tell an alcoholic there's no way in hell you're going to be able to do this, just get out of the way. And so what happened was I had the kids and here I am standing there looking at my little family one day and I realized, man, with this keen intellect and this fabulous education, I better get myself out there and get some kind of a job so we can have a decent life. Uh, that must have happened between 9 and 9.15 in the morning because it was the only time I could think coherently. Anyway, what I did was I went out and I, and I did the best I could and I found a job and I was a barmaid in a beer bar. That's what I got. I was very pleased. Anyway, I'm cleaning up the bar one day and this guy comes slithering in. And I looked at him. Oh. He. He was so cute. And he was so friendly. 
And he drank the way I did, and he danced the way I did, and he played pool the way I did. And he was as crazy as I was. And, and the time he stole the credit cards to take me to Las Vegas, I was so flattered. <laughs> and, and, when you, and when you find a gem like that, what do you do? You marry him. And nine months later, I had another kid. And when that baby was six months old, that man is standing there looking at me saying, I can't take your game. I'm gone. Now, wait a minute. I had picked him out very carefully. He was good-looking enough to be ornamental, just barely intelligent enough to be able to make a living, and stupid enough to put up with my game. And that's perfect. And he's walking out on me, and I got another kid. Come on. So I did what I knew my mother did. My mother used to call AA on my dad. But, you know, every time those nice gentlemen with their top coats and their hats and their clean handkerchiefs showed up at our daughter, at our door, my, my father was gone. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, that's what I need to do. Because I really wanted to save that sick situation. So what I did was, I did call him. And the guy said, hey, I'm sorry, but we don't do those kind of 12-step calls anymore. And I thought, wow. And, you know, and I'm on the phone with him for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I don't know. And what I wanted to do was I wanted them to put the boss on so I could turn him over. And what happened was I got the Manhattan Beach Club. And so when I asked for whoever was in charge, it took about five minutes for them to stop arguing and for them to send somebody to answer the phone. <laughs> this guy's on the phone with me and we're talking. And, you know, it had been a long time since I'd gotten any kind of tea and sympathy. And so I'm telling him all my problems. And, of course, I am in my normal condition. I'm drunk. And he's telling me, you know, and he's talking about that there's a really effective rate of recovery. And, you know, to keep, and he's giving me little clues and, you know, just, just soothing me. And he must have heard something in my voice, primarily that I'm drunk. And so he said, as a matter of fact, why don't you come up here? I would be really interested to meet you. Well, really. I love my husband, but a girl's got to watch out for herself. <laughs> and uh, he said, as a matter of fact, I'll even send a car for you. Oh, this is class. This is class. <laughs> so I told him, no, don't bother. Give me the address and I'll be there. So I, I love to describe this. I had 79 cent Zoris that I put on. I wore shoes for special occasions. I had a camel-colored corduroy pair of hip huggers with bell bottoms. And they fit, they fit me. Somebody left them at my house. I have no idea what the man went home in. But he left them at my house, and they fit me, and that made them mine. I had a size 16 and a half camel-colored shirt with a button missing right here. And I found a little brass safety pin because my hands were too shaky to try to thread a needle. And I, and I, and I pinned it carefully from the inside to observe propriety. And I, and I had a sweater, camel-colored also, that I had stolen from Goodwill because I couldn't afford to buy it. And if there's anybody in here planning on drinking again, beige. Beige is the color. You can puke through your nose all over yourself. And when it dries, you can flake it off, and it only... <laughs> good color, you know, good color. No, I want to take care of them. You know, we, we've got some people here that are going to drink again. They're entitled to the information. They've, they've saved enough money. You know, they've got the old lady back where they want it or him back where she wants him. You know, everything is smooth. It's time to cut loose. So, you know, I'm just giving you some clues. Anyway, I had a broken nose and two black eyes. And this was in 64. And that was 11 years before the Afros came into style. And I had an Afro. It was based more on grease and lack of soap than any styling. Uh, I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous wondering if you were going to live up to my expectations. <laughs> and, you know, um, I have observed since, it's wonderful, you know, we, when the women come into AA, in fact, newcomers, when newcomers come into Alcoholics Anonymous, they are the same tricks 
that they were out there because they're only not drinking. And what happens is they're going to come in here and they're going to run the same games because that's all they know. So what we have today in Alcoholics Anonymous, because all of us have such a phenomenal ability to clean up, hey, look around. We're beautiful. So what happens is a newcomer comes in and gets cleaned up. Now they're on the hunt. She's looking for Uncle Daddy and he's looking for Mommy. And the girls are wonderful, you know, because they really clean up. You got acrylic and, you know, you can really do a number. And and the truth of the matter is I really feel sorry for them because there's enough, enough sick men in Alcoholics Anonymous to play the game. See, as long as you're going to put your personal needs ahead of the needs of that sick alcoholic that's hoping that maybe this time it will work regardless of what they do, and you step in and gratify your indulgences at the expense of another human being, you are a cripple shooter. Male or female, you're a cripple shooter. And the thing is, those relationships don't work because what happened to me was, after I was sober about 10 years, some of these guys started sending their ladies to me for sponsorship. And the first question I asked them is, why are you with that sorry? And they said, I don't know. I'm beginning to look at him, and that's the reason I'm looking for a sponsor. I have one guy who has sent two of his wives to me so far, and both of them have divorced him after they started working the steps. You know, because what happens eventually is if the cripple lives and the odds are against it, they're going to turn around and look at this abuser and say, why would I want you? I deserve something better than this. And they will get out and start to grow. That's one of the reasons we have so many unsuccessful relationships in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you look at the people that have problems... Ask them when they hooked up. And at the same time, I know there's always exceptions to the rule, because I was sponsoring a lady in San Diego, a gorgeous black lady. Her name is Dee. And, uh, God, she's gorgeous. And we were speaking one time, and I was the last speaker. She spoke, two other people spoke. I haven't lost my place. I'll get back. And... When she And then she spoke, and there was this one guy that was in the, the United States Navy, stationed in San Diego, chief petty officer. And he's sitting over in the corner. And I got up to the, and I, the podium, and I said, and if you want what we have, and he looked at her, and he said, I do, I do. <laughs> so he hooked up with her, and they kept telling me they were just friends, and it was platonic. And then finally she says to me, you know, you told me, she said, it's really best if for a year we do not get involved simply because it gives us a chance to get our feet under us. I said, that's right. She said, okay. Well, she said, I've got ten months and Bill has two months and it's a year, so <laughs> we're involved. I, you know, he just, what do you say? He said, go for it. You know, you have created a wonderful learning experience. Don't drink. Anyway, so you got these newcomers coming in, and here I am. And I'm looking around for who I can score on, and i got to tell you, I'm pretty sick, and I'm pretty miserable, and I'm pretty desperate. And what happened was this guy was leading the meeting, and he said, okay, we're going to have a half an hour question and answer. We're going to have a pitch before that for a half an hour, and then we're just going to talk about sobriety or whatever anybody else wants. The name of this game is called Stump the Drunk. So he talked for a half an hour, and the thing I noticed is that everybody there laughed the same time I laughed. Now, I never trusted myself to laugh ever. I always watched you. Remember I told you I was inappropriate? Well, I always was doing things at the wrong time, so I had learned not to trust my insides, and, and my main survival mode was phony. So I would watch people, and when they laughed, I would laugh, and, and if something was said, well, I could squeeze out a tear or two, you know, and I... And I just lived off whatever clues other people were giving me. And I'm sitting there in that meeting, and, and this guy says something that is hysterically morbid and hysterically funny. And I start, and I look around. Everybody in that room was getting ready to laugh the same time I was. 
And I said to myself, these people are sick. <laughs> I knew it. Is there anybody here who's ever been to the movies? And there's this wonderful hysterical scene up there on the, on the screen. And you're just rolling around and scratching and just having the best time. And you suddenly realize yours is the only voice you hear in the theater. Well, that's the story of my life. So when these people were laughing when I was, I thought, wow. And I, and I loved it. And then he said, okay, questions and answers. And my hand's right up. How do I get my old man to stop beating me? And he says, you know, I haven't had my, anybody's old man start beating on me since I got sober. He said, but we're going to have Indy and Jeannie come up here, and I want her to share her experience, strength, and hope for this lady. So Jeannie got up there, and she got up to the podium, and she said, My name's Jeannie, and I'm an alcoholic. And any son of a bitch that lays a hand on me now that I'm sober is going to get a knife right in the gut. <laughs> and I said, Hot dog, these people have the answers. So... I stayed for that meeting, and I stayed for the 8.30 meeting, and I stayed for the Midnight Wrist Slashers meeting, you know. <laughs> that's the one where they talk about relationships. <laughs> I'm still drunk. I'm still drunk as I can be. And I, they pour me out of there. They close the club, and they pour me out of there. And I go home, and I walk into my kitchen, and I open my drawer, and I find the biggest knife that I have. And I clean it up, and I polish it, and I dry it, and I put it right there on the counter. So when he comes home, I can introduce him to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and, and he came home, and I had him up against the wall with the knife right under his throat. And I'm going, child of God, and he doesn't know what's going on, you know, he's just... Holy cat. So anyway, I pulled back to get his, you know, his reaction. He's gone. Fine. No problem. This just means I can go to every meeting I want to go to this weekend. And that's just what I did. You couldn't have peeled me out of that club. I was home. And then some turkey up there says to me, Honey, you need to find the people you really identify with. Oh, that's dangerous. You know, so I did. And I found the ones that were on, like, marijuana maintenance, or the ones that were still... See, because at the time I got sober, or at the time I first came around AA, there was a whole bunch of... You know, you, you, know, you know those old boys that sit in the back of the meeting and they look like a hanging jury? You ever see them, you know, when you get up there, when your new newcomers really identify with this, where you're given the very best pitch you can and you're trying to be as honest and emotional as you possibly can because you want people to think that you're highly dramatic, at least, and you're important anyway. And... So you give your, your your number one pitch, and they're all sitting there, and they're all going. And most of them are bald, so the light glints off their heads, you know, and they... And you can really see that little move. Well, I never had any of them go. You know, they always just... They were just shaking their heads back and forth. So anyway, um, you know, what I did was I hooked in with these people that were hanging around outside the club that... Uh, uh, just popped their fingers and dragged their heels and talked about, wow, this is a heavy program, isn't it? You know, like I said, you, you know, getting sober in 66 was an absolute experience. First of all, um, the idea of a good pitch was, um, wow, my name's Franny and uh, I'm an alcoholic and uh, this is a heavy meeting. You know, that was a good pitch. That was pretty profound. And um, so what happened was I found those people outside. So we would spend our time outside while the other people were going inside and going up to the meeting and going back out. We used to hang around there a lot. And, and, and my, my little crowd took turns getting drunk. And you know what happened? I stayed sober for six months on fear fellowship and a high-sugar diet. And I got struck drunk, and I couldn't figure out what happened. So then what I did was I went back, and I figured, well, maybe I better learn the words in the book. And what I did was I used the book to keep you away from me. I learned the words in that book so that you couldn't get too close to me. Because people would come up to me and they would say, you know, Franny, it looks like you're having a little bit of a hard time, particularly the women. Who wants to hang out with the women? The women didn't have the power. The men had the power. Women were always the losers in my world. Women had the babies and got divorced. Women didn't read anything except fashion magazines. They couldn't make an income that was worth anything. They had to keep going out and finding a man to support them. Who would want a woman for a sponsor? 
So I kept hanging out with the guys because they would pat me on the on, on the head and <laughs> tell me how great I was doing. And I wanted that. The women would look at me and I heard one woman say, sick bitch. And I treated them with total contempt. So anyway, what happened was um, I spent three years in and out, in and out, in and out of AA. And, you know, they talk about you're only as sick as your secrets. I had a big secret. See, I wasn't going to tell you. I'm the lady that killed my kid. So what happened was uh, I kept getting drunk. And finally what happened was after three years of trying to get the program, and I didn't have any place else to go, they agreed to let me come to meetings drunk as long as I didn't say anything. And that's where I was, hanging around in that club, going up there, leaving to get drunk, coming back, because I had no place else. And one woman came in with one of her babies, and she had her arm around her, and she said to her, pointed at me, she said, you see that? And the girl looked at me, and she said, yes. And the woman turned around to her, and she said, you better start working the steps. And that's what they used me for, so I did have a purpose. And what happened was there was a woman I couldn't stand. I hated her. I hated her. Everybody listened to her. They loved her. They, they, they gave her the full respect. They gave her the love, the attention, the devotion, the respect that I craved. But there was no way I could ask for it because I couldn't let you in. And I walked up to her and I was going to tell her I, how much I hated her and what a phony I thought she was. And I said to her, Daddy, I need to talk to you. Her name is Daddy McCafferty. And she said, yes. And she looked at me and I said, I want you to be my sponsor. I didn't say that. Yes, I did. And she looked at me and she said, God, Franny, I don't know. You're a loser. And I did the thing that saved my life. For 25 years, I'd never asked anybody for anything. For 25 years, I never told you whether I was hurting or not. For 25 years, I didn't cry. And I knew this was the last house on the block. And I, and I took a deep breath and I looked right in her eyes and I said the word that I hated. I said, please. And in being willing to step aside to make room for a sponsor, huh, what I wound up doing was stepping aside and making room for God. He finally had some space inside me that he could get into and start working on this self-willed idiot. I was the center of my own universe for so long, and I had absolutely destroyed my life. And I don't know where those words came from, but I had a sponsor. She said, well, and she put her hand out, one of her lieutenants gave her a directory, and she marked it. She said, these are the meetings I go to, I'll see you there. And she turned around and she walked away. Holy cat, what do I do now? I had a sponsor. So what I wound up doing was I wound up going to the meetings and carefully avoiding her. Because I didn't know what to do with her. Like, you see, I still didn't know that all you had to do was ask for help. I thought I had to know. But I never got my book, so I didn't know. And I wasn't going to tell you. She called me up one day. She said, it was 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm lying in bed screaming under the pillow. She said, are you still taking speed? I said, no. How did she know? <laughs> so then she said, when did you stop? I said, today. <laughs> she said, okay, come on over to my house and start hanging out at my house because what you're going to do is you're going to start hanging out with some sober people and find out how sober people live and what they do. And you know, I started doing that. And you know what happened? I had inadvertently slipped into a den of step Nazis. <laughs> and these people didn't want to hear any of my dramatic stories, and they didn't want to hear any of my funny stories, and they didn't consider the lack of a, of a boyfriend a terminal disease. And they weren't about to put up with anything from me except talking about the steps based on my experience with the steps. And the reason I started working the steps was because I dearly wanted those people to ask me to go to the movies with them on Friday night. And I was so desperately afraid to tell them my story. 
So what I did was I tried it out, little pieces on a couple people, but nobody ever got the whole thing. See, I didn't want to tell them. I'm the lady that stood in the liquor store and tried to bargain my body for some booze when I was 30 years old. And the, the clerk back there, my best friend, whatever his name was, said to me, Franny, you're not worth a half a pint of scotch. <laughs> I didn't want to tell them that I was the lady that hid under the Redondo Pier where there were rats and I had a long stick and I was driving the rats away because the tide was coming in and the rats were coming up in the rocks. And I'm up there on the rock and I'm under the pier because I'd rather be down there with the four-legged rats because there were some two-legged rats up there looking for me because I'd stolen somebody's stuff again and eaten it, lost it, sold it, given it away, whatever you do with other people's stuff. So this is the kind of crazy woman that this woman had taken on to sponsor. And the only thing she did was talk to me. She never judged me. And when I told her about my kid, she said, hey, she says, you know, some of us are good baby factories and bad mothers, so what? She said, I had five kids, and every one of them I gave away. I said, you did? She said, yeah. I said, don't you feel horrible? She says, Franny, they're better off. And, and it was that kind of reality and that non-judgmental stuff that started reaching me. And, you know, one day I woke up and I realized that, on the whole, I was 51% in favor of being alive. And it was remarkable. And I went to her and I had this stuff that kept bubbling up and then I'd smile. And I said to her, it feels like gas. She says, it's probably joy. And I couldn't believe it. And, and after I finished working the third step, I figured she'd send me off to save alcoholic souls. And what she said to me was, now, go home and do your dishes. What? So I did my dishes out of the same way I used to drink it, people. I washed it. I smashed it. I washed it. I smashed it. I washed it. I smashed it. But you know what? I looked down and I had a clean sink. <laughs> and I took the comet and I, and, I, and I scrubbed it out and I rinsed it. And there was such a little tiny sense of satisfaction. And I went to the meeting that night, and now they're calling on me, because I've been sober some months now. And Jim said, Franny, how'd you do today? I said, my name's Franny, I'm an alcoholic, and I got a clean sink. She wasn't there. So I called her up, and I said, i got to tell you something. And I told her, she said, good, do it tomorrow. And what happened was, by doing that stupid stuff, I mean, what has a clean sink got to do with sobriety? I don't know, but I know what it has to do with self-respect. And I know that if I didn't start developing some self-respect, I would have drank again. Because that was the reason the world was intolerable. So my sponsor, by telling me to do these stupid things, was putting me in a position of becoming a human being. Of learning painfully how to do the kind of things that everybody did as a matter of course. And what happened with that was... When I was about nine months sober, um, I started at 8.30, so um, I'm going to finish it. I mean, I, yeah, 8.30, so I got a little while. Anyway, what happened was, I don't want you to get nervous, you know. I just want to finish the story. But anyway, this little Indian broad comes walking up to me, and she said, I want you to be my sponsor. And I thought, oh, she's sick. So I went to my sponsor, and I said, Dottie, what do I do now? Becky wants me to sponsor her. She said, Franny, stay one step ahead of her. She'll never know the difference. <laughs> and another time I went to Dottie, and I said, Dottie, Susie's got a boyfriend. Ellie's got a boyfriend. Janet's got a boyfriend. Must I remain celibate for the rest of my life? And she looked at me right in the eye, and she said, maybe. <laughs> and I said... Wow. And she said, but consider this. As sick as you are, at this stage of the game, any guy that's interested in you isn't worth your time. <laughs> and I thought, I can, I can agree to that. I can agree. I recognize the truth. And see, when it came time to pick a sponsor, I didn't go to anybody that was patting me on the head or patting me on the back. Because when I was going to find the partner in life that was going to help me live, I didn't want a liar and I didn't want a fool. 
So I had to find somebody who was going to tell me the truth, regardless of how it impacted our relationship. And she told me early on in the game, I am not your best friend. I don't care if we never get socially involved. I'm your sponsor. The only thing I'm interested in is your sobriety. So therefore, the only aspects of your life that I'm interested in is anything that's going to affect your sobriety. So the first thing you're going to do is quit lying, because I don't like failure. Okay. So I started learning how to rerun the tape, saying, hold it, that was wrong, and I started telling the truth. And what happened was I found out that this program is not about avoiding mistakes. You know, you ever see these people? We get them. You've got them here. I know you do. You can't be complete without them. The people that say, well, if she had a better program, she wouldn't be having financial problems right now. You ever heard that? You know... If you want to show me somebody who's walking the way they're talking, show me somebody who's going through the normal hardships of being a human being and not drinking. That's the person I want to see. And, and somehow or other, we've got some idiots around this program that reverse that and say, if you're not financially successful, if you're not physically perfect, if you're not socially well-attached, you obviously are not working a good program. Also, you must have the best-looking husband on the street, and your kids are all going to military school, you know? And that's all... That's some kind of pipe dream. I have watched people get sober and walk through cancer and not drink. I have seen people get sober and go on welfare and sit there at a meeting and say, oh, God, my life is so much better. And I know what they're talking about. You know, the real stuff of being alive is knowing that this program is about a willingness to get out there and make the mistakes and learn from them. There is no way we can unconsciously do it right all the time. And so what happens is we got some people on the program that are immobilized because they think if they make a mistake, everybody will know they have a bad program. And that's because of the myths that we're promulgating at the meetings. And it's not fair. Not only that, it's dishonest. You know, so just a little bit to think about. One of the other things I found out also is, is that we have a tendency to go to meetings and whine, and we're whining about these things that give us problems. And the truth of the matter is, the thing that's giving us the current problem today is the gift we received shortly before because of our sobriety. We're like rich, fat ladies complaining about the servant problem. <laughs> totally ungrateful. How come? because we support each other's bullshit. That's why. You know, and what I found out is, have we got any newcomers here? Hey, guys, I want to tell you something. Find yourself a sponsor who walks the way they talk. Interview people. Find somebody who has worked the steps. And there's two ways to find a sponsor. You can find somebody you identify with. As far as I'm concerned, if you identify with them, they're in trouble. But if you can find a sponsor who has what you want, who has the kind of integrity that you want when you grow up, that's a start. That's a start. And it's not a matter of finding somebody who can only talk about the program. It's a matter of finding somebody who works the program, who's willing to share of themselves, and who is not a martyr doing it. You know, I have a sense about this group here in Cincinnati. I think you are successful. I've spent sometime coming in from the plane with some of the people um, and we talked it's a real it wasn't lightweight chit chat we talked and then at the dinner table we talked again and I got a sense that there are people here that are interested in the steps somebody was talking about sobriety families and he knew what he was talking about and somebody else was talking about sponsorship and it was like they were alive and if you're feeling lonely in this program go find the people who are busy working with other people and hanging with them. You know, there's no reason for anybody ever to be alone again. You know, what we are, each one of us, is a little tiny link in a great big chain that goes around the world. And I've got these babies that I'm sponsoring, and oh, they are crazy. 
They're all crazy. That's the reason I try to get them into the steps as soon as possible. I cannot tolerate fresh alcoholics. Okay. So they, they need a little boiling, you know. So I got these babies over here. And they're hanging on for dear life. And I got, you know, I got that same nasty sponsor. And she's over here, and I'm holding on to her. They ask me questions, and every now and then I call her up, and I ask her questions, and she snarls at me. You know, that's the way it is. But the thing is, is that I got this, the, the, the hope over here. I've got the experience over here, and it looks like I got the strength. I just told you my story, man. We know I don't have that strength. What I have is some enthusiasm. I work the steps. It talks about clean house. I'm working through the steps one more time out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I've got a group of people who are working it together. So we got the experience here, we got the hope here, and I'm hanging on. And I gotta tell you something, you go through life hanging on, you can't fall down. Thank you. <laughs>